gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And this week, we are joined by Brad Hambrick, and we're going to talk about his book, Angry with God, An Honest Journey Through Suffering and Betrayal. So, Brad, thank you for joining us. Um, before we get started, could you share a little bit about yourself? Sure, uh, and I appreciate this invitation. Uh, as you said, my name is Brad. I serve as the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in uh, Durham, North Carolina. also teach at Southeastern Seminary a bit in their counseling department. Uh, my wife and I have been married for going on 25 years. Uh, her name is Sally. Uh, we have two boys. Uh, the oldest is just getting ready to go away to college. Uh, the younger one is a sophomore in high school. So we are in a uh, busy season of life, but one that uh, you can start to see the kids getting far enough to, to being independent that I have no desire to rush it whatsoever. Uh, those who talk about an empty nest as if it's a fun thing, uh, I'm sure it will be. God will be good and gracious when we get there. I just um, feel no need to rush it. Well, you're in the right place because I have four boys. Rachel has three boys, so we have the Parents of Boys Club. We had about a year and a half with no kids in our house, and one of them moved back, and I'm very happy about it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. Yeah, I think maybe the most distracting thing about the book uh, is that it says anger on the cover, um, angry with God, and it is... Uh, primarily a book about grief. Um, and uh, enough just in my role where uh, what I do is primarily direct care. Uh, a lot of people welcome me into uh, the hardest parts of their life, uh, whether it is the death of a loved one, um, some major conflict that they've had with a job or a ministry that they loved, a, a diagnosis they weren't expecting, a, a hardship or uh, something with one of their children. And, um, you know, as we explored that, one of the things that was a recurring theme is that when we go through those kind of profoundly hard life-shaping events, um, it causes grief. And oftentimes in the midst of grief, one of the more overlooked parts of grief is anger. And, you know, sweet, sincere uh, Christians who were processing these hard things and when something would start to upset them and they would get their ire up and maybe they would ask me directly or just the look on their face would say, is it okay for me to feel this way? Like, what do I do with this unrest that runs hot in my soul as I am navigating these things. 
and being able to talk about um, anger as a part of grief, and that if our faith is important to us, there's no way that we're going to process those emotions uh, without them in some way interfacing and interacting with our relationship with God. And so, how do we do that? Um, and there was just enough of those conversations that seemed to have some value and merit and benefit that uh, over time, I thought, yeah, I think maybe this could be a, a helpful book. Thank you for that. Um, I just, I wanted to say, I know we talked about this before we got on the recording, but I really appreciated your book. Uh, as someone who's grown up in the church, who's had many uh, times in my life with difficult situations where um, I've struggled with my emotions and how I respond to the grief and the anger, um, it was very helpful to read it. And I'm I'm looking forward to going back and reading it through slower um, and working through a lot of what you what you talk about in the book. Um, I wanted to ask you, and I know you, you address it in the book, but what does the title mean, Angry with God? Yeah, so if you looked at the title, uh, there was kind of a play on words there. Uh, it was written to be angry at God, and then the at is scratched through, uh, and the at is replaced with with. Um, and that's kind of indicative of the journey that I want the reader uh, to go on. That oftentimes we think, if I'm angry, I am, I am angry at God, and we've all been angry at someone. Uh, and when we're angry at someone, it's competitive, it's adversarial. We think at the end of this conversation, whatever we call it, that there's going to be a winner and a loser, and I sure don't want to be the loser. But if we're talking with God, then like I, I, I'm not going to win, and He loses, and so um, it feels it feels a bit like a trap. And then we've all had conversations where maybe we're angry about something and we're talking with a friend. And when we're talking with a friend about what upsets us, our voice may get as loud. We may hit the same decibel levels. Our words may be as sharp. It, um, you know, the just the amount of adrenaline pumping through our body could be about the same. But at the end of that conversation, we usually kind of have a sigh. We make eye contact and we say, thank you. Like it, I know that was a hard conversation, but it just, it feels better to have that conversation with you. Um, and I think so often as Christians, when we go through these hard times, um, somehow we get the impression that God doesn't want to hear this part of our life, that we have to bring it to him and throw it at him. Uh, and we don't realize these are invited conversations. I mean, sometimes people go, ah, well, God's big enough. He's strong enough. He can take it. You tell him whatever's on your mind. And it's still like we're somehow being rebellious. Um, when we come and we say we're hurting and we're upset and we don't know what to do with it. But those are those are invited conversations. Um, and so I want the reader to be able to go, I don't. I don't have to force these things on God as if I am angry at him. I can bring these things to God and it be a conversation with him as we walk through these things together. One of the things that I'm thinking about as you're talking, something that we have talked about a lot is the Psalms of Lament. Um, you know, that we we can have these conversations with the Lord. And in a personal note, I I really when you're working through something that involves a lot of grief and you have all these other emotions, um, for me, I I had serious health problems. And while I'm going through that, I had the loss of several people close to me, including my brother-in-law to suicide and my um, really, really close friend and mentor. And it, there was just so so many emotions that sometimes you're like, what am I? What am I even feeling? And you're expressing to the Lord what what you're feeling. I think it'd be helpful to talk about the relationship between anger and grief. Yeah, uh, sometimes I like to talk about emotions and use colors. Uh, I think it just helps us be a little clearer in our mind's eye with it. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that grief is just gray, that it's just sad. 
Um, and, you know, you mentioned Psalms of Lament. Uh, if you look at the Psalms where the various psalmists are writing about the things that they've been through, like you'll find a lot of exclamation marks in those Psalms. Like those, those Psalms of Lament, that if we were expecting them to just be gray, they flash red and orange and yellow. And, you know, even as you were sharing that brief snippet of your story, it's like, yes, so many emotions begin to circulate in that experience of grief. And, you know, part of grief is just that emotional recognition that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, Paul, when he talks about death, he calls it the last enemy to be conquered. Uh, that sense of like when we are, whether it's the death of a loved one, the death of a dream, uh, uh, whatever it is that is that loss that has died, that that's a product of the fall. And that that upsets God. I mean, one way that I write about it in the book is that oftentimes our, it's not just that God is sympathetic to our anger in that moment. Oftentimes our anger echoes his. We're resonating with his response uh, to what is wrong and broken and kind of that domino and ripple effect of the fall that is coming through our life and you know, if we think of ourselves as parents, I mean, we all talked about having boys earlier. When, when something happens in the life of one of my boys and it is hard on them and upsetting and they feel defeated or disoriented, I'm not apathetic towards that as a parent. Uh, it, it riles me up. And when they face that and they go, ah, this just upsets me so much. Um, you know, that there's that parental response of me too. Um, and so when, when our grief is not simple sadness, when it's not only gray, um, I think it shows that we're responding to the brokenness of the world that we live in, in the way that it is rubbing up against us in a way that um, that it takes more than just grief, than just sadness. It, the other emotions have to tune in and harmonize with that for it to be a full and complete experience. I um, appreciate what you said there about anger and grief and the connection. Um, it, one of the things that, if, it's, if it isn't said outright um, in, within Christian circles, it's certainly implied a lot. Is that you know anger? Anger is a sin. Like we shouldn't we shouldn't be angry, and we should certainly shouldn't be angry uh, and telling God about our anger. Um, so, how would you answer that? Isn't isn't anger a sin? Do we need to repent? Yeah. And so maybe one way to say that uh, is yes, there is James four anger. You look at James 4, what causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Is it not this? Uh, your desires, they run away with you. And so you bite and devour one another and treat each other all nasty. And that moves from like a quote to a paraphrase. Um, and there, uh, our anger reveals the idols of our heart. It reveals the good things that became so important that we were willing to sin against God and others in order to try to pursue those things. Um, and that anger is sinful. And we should repent. And repentance isn't bad. Repentance is a gift. It's something that we should be grateful for. Um, and so when I write about angry with God and anger as an expression of grief, I'm not saying that all anger is always an expression of grief. But there's James 4 anger. And then kind of the passage I use as a backbone for this book is Psalm 44. There's Psalm 44 anger where if you just trace that psalm, there's like the first eight verses of Psalm 44 that the psalmist's life was going well. And the psalmist is giving God all the credit for every good thing that's happening in his life. And it really is a model and a recipe 
for how we should give God credit for the good things in our life. If we look at it, we're like, man, this person, they were not puffed up and conceited by their good times. And then after verse eight, there's a Salah. And we don't know what happened at the Salah. I think I think it's better that we don't know. But whatever happened was a train wreck. And then for the next eight verses, the psalmist gives God every bit as much blame as he was giving God credit in the first eight verses. Um, and then you hit three or four verses where the psalmist is just disoriented and confused. Like they're like, God, you know my heart. You search my ways. If I, I've been faithful to you, and if I hadn't been, you would know it. I couldn't hide it from you. Um, and you can just hear them searching as they're talking. And then you hit the last three or four verses. And this is the spot where the psalmist is talking with exclamation points. Um, you know, if uh, the Bible was written in text matches lingo, this would be all caps here, where it's like, wake up, God, rouse yourself. Why are you asleep at the wheel? And I'm not just being tongue in cheek here when I say, I'm really glad the Psalms have got some heresy in them. Like when the psalmist with exclamation points as command is shouting at God, wake up, rouse yourself. That's, that's invited language. That's God saying in the middle of your journey, you're going to need prayers like this. And again, Psalms, one of the things that I think is unique about it is most of the rest of the Bible is written from an end-of-the-journey perspective. I mean, we get the Pentateuch, um, and all of that is written at the end of Moses' life when he's looking back at it. Uh, we get the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on the other side of the resurrection. We get the book of Acts on the other side of the church, making it all the way to Rome. Um, Psalms give us a middle-of-the-journey perspective. Like, they are written for what faith looks like in real time before the outcome is known. And they're an invitation. I mean, as I was trying to mirror, uh, this would be a brief excursus into parenting here, but when I was trying to mirror what I was doing with Psalm 44 in this book, in my parenting with my two boys, uh, it here's what it looked like. I, one of the things I do uh, usually in the summer, we'll we'll find a time to take a man trip together, and it's really it gives mom a weekend off, and the boys and I go, and we do uh, stuff, and we talk about the seasonal life they just came out of, what's next. But uh, when they became thirteen, uh, I gave them, you know, normally on these trips, I'd write them a letter where the things I was saying was there and put it in a notebook for them. But I'd give them a sealed letter. On the outside of that letter, it just, in big Sharpie letters, it says, Papa's an idiot. Uh, and I, I gave it to them. I'm like, look, I'm going to put this in your notebook. Doubtless, there's going to be a time in, uh, in the not so distant future that you're up in your room and you think we've been completely unfair or we're out of touch or uh, this rule just doesn't need to be there, whatever it is. And you're going to be in your room thinking Papa's an idiot. And when that thought's running through your head and you're mad at me, just will you remember this letter? Will you open it up and read it? Uh, a draft of that letter, if you just go on my website, bradhambury.com, everything's free there. Uh, and just in the search, Papa's an idiot, you can see a version of what was there. But I'm like, hey, if you if you bring this letter to me, and basically what the letter says is, hey, son, I... Whatever the it is that you're upset about right now is not more important to me than you. If you'll bring me this letter, I will set aside whatever the it is for a moment. And we can, we can make sure we're okay because the it's not more important than us. And this, this letter is kind of your ticket that, that we can just talk, talk and make sure we're okay. That's kind of what a Psalm 44, these Psalms of hot lament, it's not the only one, it's just the one I used in this book, where God is saying in the middle of your journey, 
you're going to need a prayer like this because like it may not be right, but it's the only thing that makes sense at the moment. And I will meet you where you are. I mean, that's what the incarnation is all about. The incarnation was Jesus meeting us where we are. That's not just a physical space and time thing. Like, hey, I will meet you in the midst of that storm of emotions. Uh, We can talk about things like you feeling like I'm asleep at the wheel. And so uh, I don't think we're going to look back and say, it's back to your question of, is it okay to be angry at God? I don't think we're going to look back and say, oh, well, you know, God, I was angry at you. I wish you had done something different. I think my way is better than your way. Oh, no, God's sovereign. We're not. We're not going to correct him and him say, oops, I'm sorry. But he will absolutely, as a good father, say, invite me into that moment with you. Don't go through that alone. Don't feel like you've got to emotionally get yourself together and then come present yourself to me when you look a little nicer. I'll meet you right there. You know, uh, in my very darkest darkest time it was psalm 13 that really stuck out to me i I happened to have it set to music and i would listen to it over and over and it starts with how long O lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me and of course god hasn't forgotten me or hidden his Mm -hmm. face but in those dark moments you're like hello lord i'm over here but what comforted me is how it ends but I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me. And it was such kind of a reminder in the in the very darkest times that even though I feel like the first part of the song, Psalm, I know that the last part is true and I can hold on to it. And, you know, there's other ones too, but that, that one in, in particular. So it, in the kind of beginning of the book, you talk about your pain is not a riddle. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. And this is one where when we're going through a season of hurting, uh, there's probably no question that we ask more than the simple three little question, why? And there's probably nothing that hurts or offends us more than people's attempt to answer the question, why? Because so often, we do, we really want pain to be like a riddle. Because when you got a riddle, uh, there's some kind of little pithy statement and question and that kind of thing. And it's a play on words. Or um, And when you don't know the answer to the riddle, it creates angst. And so the example I give in the book is from the Lord of the Rings when the little golem creature and Bilbo are down in the caverns and they're doing their riddle war. and um, yeah, I think this is the question that Bilbo asked a golem, like, um, you know, rivers, mountains, trees, and something. Uh, I devour all of these. And, you know, it's got a nice little rhythmic cadence to it. You're like, what can do all of these? You know, I trouble kings. Uh, what can topple kings and mountains and rivers? Um, and when you don't know the answer, it just vexes you. And then as soon as you hear the answer, Time. Time is what does all of those things. Uh, Then the ability for that riddle to create angst goes away because you can't unhear the answer. Uh, And we want in our pain to know, like, what is the thing? What what is it that that I was so hard headed that God just couldn't get it through my head any other way or what I did in this moment that like uniquely deserved this? And we're like, if I could just find out what the it is. Um, and oftentimes, I'd probably say more often than not, that there's not an answer like that. Pain isn't a riddle. It's a journey. Uh, it's not something where we get an answer and we go, ah, that's it. Now, like everything's resolved and better. It's uh, it's a journey that I traverse um, and I grow a lot. I grow closer to the Lord. I learn things about him that I wouldn't have seen uh, otherwise. And all of those things can be good without the journey being easy or even so many of the things on the journey being good. Many years ago, 
when my husband and I have been married uh, 23 years this year. And after we'd been married about a year, we were expecting our first and our daughter was stillborn. Mm. And it was a very difficult time period. And and I can look back on it now and see how God brought us through it and has cared for us through it. Um, At the time, I was very angry. And I was not really being honest with myself about how I felt about things. I was trying to, you know, get myself right with myself before I kind of dealt with God about how I was feeling. And, and my husband called me on it and he says, you're angry and you're angry with God, angry at God. And he was right. And I realized in that moment and something that stuck with me is that God already knew how I felt. He knew I was angry. He knew the hurt and pain, everything I was going through. I might as well talk to him about it because he was there and he cares. And it really freed up uh, for me the ability to talk to him uh, through these very difficult things in my life. One of the things that I, I, a quote that I pulled from your book, that arguing with God is a form of prayer. If you find yourself arguing with God, be encouraged. Your prayer life may be better than you thought. And I wondered if you could um, explain that a little or uh, tease it out a little more. Yeah. Um, and I think what you were sharing there really kind of segues into that of sometimes we think prayers have to be really nice. Um, and oftentimes that's because the time when we hear other people pray most is at church and they're praying in big open spaces for a whole lot of, you know, people trying to, uh, represent the, the concerns or interest of, and we don't get to hear really private, personal prayers like Psalm 13 and Psalm 44 and Psalm 88, um, if you will, the whole book of Lamentations. Um, And if you think about whether it's a marriage, a close friendship, if all you had was quote-unquote Southern nice conversations with that person. How meaningful, how connected, how helpful would that relationship be? But oftentimes we act as if it's only those really nice prayers that we pray with God, the ones that he would give us an A for in poetry class that are the ones that count. But so often in counseling, I mean, one of the things I probably say as much as any other is when somebody's sharing something and they share it through tears and their voice gets loud and the words get sharp, it's just, thank you for trusting me with that. It shows a lot of courage, a lot of trust uh, that you have greatly honored our relationship by being willing to share those hard things. Um, And the other part, like it usually feels awkward to them of like, really that I thought I was being like a hot mess or nasty or whatever word they want to use to describe what it is that they feel like. And it, it feels off to hear that responded to with appreciation and affirmation. I mean, it's in the Beatitudes where God said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. A paraphrase of that is we have to trust God with our tears if we're going to know the care that he has for us. And so when we come and we're in that really raw, honest, this is where I'm at. I don't know if it's right. I don't know how much I'll agree with what I'm saying right now a week from now, but this is really where I'm at. That shows a level of authenticity uh, that, again, mirrors what we have in the Psalms. So that's that's the kind of thing I was getting at in that with that quote. You know, my, I was thinking of my dad while you were talking. Um, I lost him three years ago now, but he used to talk about when when I was going through something or uh, my sister that kind of the contentment comes after you work through it and get to the other side 
when when we were young, he would talk to us about that um, because my sister would say, but I'm not happy. Well, you got to work through this hard stuff. Uh, and I think about that a lot. Um, you posed this question. What does God make of our emotional expressions during our profoundly painful experiences? How would you answer that? I think he appreciates them. I mean, I, uh, one of the images that I use in there is if you uh, if you imagine, I embellish it a little more in a story than I will here, but a, a child who had a pet dog when they were growing up, parents got the um, you know little guy, a puppy when he was little and they grew up together. The puppy runs off, gets in the road, gets hit, and uh, the child is angry. And the child lashes out at the parents. You got me this dog. You knew it would die. You knew I wouldn't always close the gate. Um, you know, the kids' grades were slipping and, you know, the parents were trying to be like, hey, you need to work. All you care about is my grades. And, you know, the kid's making all kinds of statements. And if we think about being the parent in that moment, and again, that idea from uh, Jesus teaching of like, is we who uh, as fallen as broken we are and trying to mirror the father who is good. The most effective thing that we can do in that moment is not create a T-chart with everything that child just said and list the true things on one side and the false things on the other side. Um, but you come in, you put your arm around them. You make a little bit of eye contact and you say, hey, I miss Fido too. Like that joining in the grief of being able to see past the hotness of those little popped off statements that were really in that case communicating, I'm hurting. And to join with them in that. Uh, I mean, that's. Uh, so often in these conversations, we rush right to Romans 8, 28. Uh, if you look at like 25, 26, 27, the way that Paul walks into that kind of passage, um, you know, one of the phrases in, in that introductory section is that it's the Spirit who is interceding to God on our behalf when what we're, when what we're feeling is groans too deep for words. Kind of the imagery there is that even our silence can't be silent before God. That pain that we can't articulate yet is being perfectly articulated by the Spirit to the Father, that the Father is right there beside us. And I get it. And it hurts. A sin-marred world bothers me too. Um. And in the tension we live in between the already and the not yet, uh, yes, these things will ultimately be resolved in heaven. Uh, and we can have assurance of that because of what has already been done. But we live in between those and it's raw. And we don't have a father who is aloof to that rawness. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the imagery that comes to mind to, to what you were asking. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the importance of uh, good friends to come alongside you in your in your grief as you process your your pain and your anger. And you talk about um, how to find and identify and and even how to work with friends so that they become good friends for the journey. Um, and I, you kind of mentioned earlier about people, you know, trying to to answer your question and and answer your why questions and about how it's not always helpful. And I know Colleen and I both can share, uh, and I'm sure you can too, things that you've mm -hmm. heard people say when they meant well, but it really was just the wrong thing to say at the time. And um, especially in, in in our why questions. But um, can you talk about how we can find good friends? For those difficult times. Yeah. And I think many times what, what trips us up if we're in the befriending role or trips up our friends if we're in the grieving role is we often don't know what to do with the silence. Like we want to fill the silence with words 
And our words often become much more about comforting our own discomfort uh, than it does ministering to our friend. Uh, And so with that in mind, I think the best piece of advice that I got in my entire seminary education, and I don't even think the professor knew that he said it, um, but he was responding to something that a student said. And he said, if you don't know what to say, ask more questions. Um, like if a sense of direction, of encouragement, of uh, something like that, if it's not clear, um, try to enter this person's world a little more. Get to know where, because rarely do we offend people and upset them and hurt them with honest, genuine, curious, compassionate questions. It's usually our statements. Um and so, really, the, the way that I wrote the book to facilitate that um, is the book is very short chapters. Um, and uh, that's why there's a lot of short chapters in there, maybe 25 short little chapters. And uh, it's meant to be a conversation guide between friends. So, you could read the book and, like, this helps me process my experience. But... Uh, when you get to, let's just pick a chapter at random seven, and you're like, man, this journey feels a little lonely. Uh, I'd like to invite a friend with me. And I say, hey, can, can we just talk through these things together? Uh, and for you, it's a bit of review, and they don't feel like they have to fill the moments of silence with words. It can, it can be the kind of book that just facilitates conversations between you and that friend, and it takes more of the burdens of words off of them so that they can be God's an ambassador of God's ears of listening, an ambassador of God's eyes of compassion. Uh, they don't always feel the need to be the ambassador of God's mouth um, saying just the right thing at just the right moment. Yeah. I think that w- one of the problems that I've personally experienced is, and people mean well, but they they try to say something in that really, really difficult time that isn't always helpful. And when I went through a really difficult time and I experienced people that were so well-meaning, but said things that were not helpful for me in that moment, I asked myself, what what did I really need in that moment? I just need somebody to sit and cry with me. That's what I, and pray. Um and and my best friend who's gone through all this stuff that's what we do when mm-hmm. we're suffering we cry the simple and powerful ministry of presence just being present um cuz pain is so lonely uh, it echoes if nobody's there and just having somebody that like they're they're emotionally echoing with you what they're resonating with what you're feeling so that this experience that already feels lonely you're not alone in it again i think sometimes our temptation to use words is because we we don't understand the power and value of simple presence in hard times you know it, it's often said kind of tongue in cheek but the truth of it you know, when when someone says that the the best thing that Job's friends did was sit in silence with him for a week, you know that it's just true that they, that was that was comforting. They sat with him in his pain, but then they tried to fill the gap. Things went down. That's, that's not a joke. That's truth. That's like there was real value. It wasn't just that what they did for the next thirty or forty chapters was bad. Is that that week that they sat with him was good. Um, and yeah, I think that's a great point. You, you've talked about it a little bit already, but, um, maybe add to what you've already said about this. How, how do the Psalms help us process and express our our emotions? They become template prayers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a musical person. Uh, I know, just enough music that I think I can pull this illustration off. But I think we're meant to read the Psalms like jazz musicians play jazz music. 
jazz musicians don't have sheet music in front of them where they're trying to hit every note on the page the way that they're supposed to. Uh, they, they know the melody uh, and they just riff uh, off of the melody. And so uh, when we come to Psalms, and we find something, it's not just that these are the prescribed words that we can speak to God in hard, hard times, um, but they, they become these templates that we can rip off of. They become a melody that uh, as we're talking about what we're going through, uh, that we know that these kinds of prayers are not just receivable, but invited by God because he inspired them for moments like what we're going through. Um, and especially for Christians who feel self-conscious about any emotion that's unpleasant, um, that that sense of invitation can be really freeing um, to have a more honest and authentic conversation with God where he gets to minister to a part of our life that we held back from him when we weren't comfortable being that honest. When I was in college, I took a class, um, secular university, but I took a class, uh, the Bible is literature. And it was a um, rabbi who taught the class. It was really very interesting. It was great as far as perspective uh, from his perspective on the Old Testament. And one of the things he said about the Psalms really stuck with me. And that the amazing thing about it is that man's word to God becomes God's word to man that we are to use to talk to God, right? Like, it's just mm-hmm. the beauty of that, right? You yeah. Know? Um, you talk about in your book, and you know, we've been talking about how anger can affect our relationships. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how anger uh, affects our relationship with God, both negatively but also how it can affect our relationship positively. Yeah. Uh, One of the phrases that, um, you know, when I write a book, uh, I don't know how people think about writing a book. When I first thought about writing a book, it was like, I need to have some really good things to say that I'm really confident in. And I just need to tell people what to think. And um, and I found writing a book is very different than that. Uh, Like I, as I write, I am exploring the subject kind of imagining the reader coming alongside of me as we do that. Uh, And the phrase that, um, I don't know that I coined it, but it captured what I was after is on the other side of these kinds of experiences, we have a less innocent faith. And that's actually a good thing. Like sometimes I think in church circles, we, we have an idea that only the most innocent, the most positive, uh, the most Pollyanna, optimistic faith, that that's the only good faith that really honors God. Um, But there's a less innocent faith that does so too. Uh, So if I'm playing with that phrase and we just ask, like, what do we mean by innocent? If you imagine looking at a child and they're playing and they don't have a care in the world and you just kind of get struck and you gasp and you go, they're so innocent. That's so sweet. You know, what is it that we're seeing in that child that makes their experience as an innocent child different from our less innocent adult experience? Well, they don't have a care in the world. They're not thinking about whether supper needs to be made and how bills are going to be paid and how many more years the roof is going to be good before it springs a leak and the car needs to be prepared and the schedule of three things going on and how we're going to align all of those and make it happen. They're just down there in the floor with their trucks or dolls and making up a conversation. And it is as if they live in a safe world where every moment is self-contained. Okay, well, innocence is beautiful and precious, and we love it, and we're called to have a childlike faith. Um, But then if we ask, what's the opposite of innocence? It's not cynicism. It's not jadedness. It's maturity. Like when we look at Proverbs, it calls us to plan for the future and prepare and to be able to anticipate outcomes and 
when we when we live wisely with the realities of what it means to be in a broken world, we have a less innocent faith. We have a, a gritty uh, faith that um, that is useful in the kind of world that we live in. And uh, and so to be able to get to the spot and go, this, this isn't damaged goods faith. Uh, this isn't plan B, plan C, plan D uh, faith. This is, this is gritty, less innocent faith that God honors and enjoys and receives every bit as much as he does that innocent childlike faith. You know, I I know just from our Facebook group that we have so many, just the women, we have men listeners too, but the women in our group that are suffering, a variety of things. I always tell people, don't compare your suffering with someone else's because they'll say, I'm not suffering as bad as that person. Well, but you're suffering and, um, and it is real for you. But, you know, everything from a lot of people having financial struggles right now, um, troubles in their marriage, or maybe they've lost a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend to death. So many different things. And we're faced with it all the time. You know, I'm sure you being in a larger church, there's always people that are suffering in in some way. And I think anger is often part of that. I know that just from my own experience. Um, Could you offer some encouragement to those people, the ones that are struggling with anger in whatever they're going through right now? Yeah. I mean, the point that you just made is so important. Um, Suffering is not a competitive sport. Uh, I mean, the way that I often say it is kind of the coaching background in me, but um, just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurts any less. Um, like we're not competing for God's compassion and the hardships that we go through. Our, our suffering's not competitive. Um, but maybe one thing, and it probably the kind of thing your listener doesn't give themselves enough credit for. Like if they're listening this far into a conversation, that really is an indication of a level of perseverance. Um, of hope, of trust, of of not giving up, of like, even though things are hard, uh, I know that like this, this really can be a dark chapter in my life that is still a part of a good story. Um, and uh, that idea of like, we don't have to discount the darkness of this chapter to infirm the goodness of the story overall. Um, And for that listener who is going through that kind of hard time, uh, you don't have to rush yourself through this season. If we want to talk about Psalms, uh, maybe the most famous Psalm of all, Psalm 23. Yeah, my favorite verb in Psalm 23 is that it says he will walk with his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, that God doesn't get rushed and he doesn't rush us because of the surroundings. Uh, There is a strength and majesty to our shepherd that even if we are walking with a limp, even if our walk feels more like a crawl, that impatience that we feel is something that we're imposing on ourselves, not something that he is putting on us. And when we recognize the goodness and care, like whatever time it takes to process and move through this dark season, our shepherd is very content to move at that pace because he's in a good, he is a good shepherd. He's not in a hurry to get to something else. Thank you for that. And, you know, thank you again for all of your um, encouragement here and in, in your book. I know that you mentioned um, your resources that are on your website. Are there some other resources? And we, we will link that in the show notes, but are there other resources that you would recommend for someone who is processing pain and grief and anger? Yeah. Um, and so 
I really like the works of Diane Lingberg uh, when it comes to uh, those kinds of hardships that felt fit in the realm of abuse or trauma. Uh, Diane's work is uh, some of the best uh, that I've come across. Um, you know, for your listener who says, hey, I, I just haven't developed how to care for suffering as well as I have for those things that are sin. Uh, Mike Emlett uh, has a, it's another short book, um, Saint, Sufferer, and Sinner. Uh, it's a devotional style book that just says, hey, how does, how does God minister to my identity? How does God minister to those experiences of my life that are suffering? And how does God minister to those areas of my life that are sin? And how can we be better at that with one another? Very accessible, uh, good resource there. For those whose suffering is more interpersonal, like it was a hardship between you and somebody else, uh, forgiveness is a theme that often gets misunderstood, leveraged, misused in that kind of arena. Uh, If the things we're talking about has resonated and felt safe to you, uh, there's a book very similar to the one I did on Angry with God called Making Sense of Forgiveness. Um, And so depending on the type of hardship that your listener listener is going through. Uh, I think any of those could be valuable resources. And I, I'm going to link your website and of course the book and, mm-hmm. um, and you have just so a variety of great resources on your website, including a list of other books that you've written and one of which I am planning on reading. So I would, I would encourage everyone to go and, and look, you have just a, a ton of great resources on your website. Thank you so much for joining us. This was, this was great. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for just the quality of question and conversation, the the amount of your story that you've shared with your listener and um, making principles and concepts so much more relatable. Uh, it's really, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. <music>